This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of adult dysplasia of the hip from the recon section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Adult dysplasia of the hip is a disorder of abnormal development of the hip joint resulting in a shallow acetabulum with lack of anterior and lateral coverage. Diagnosis is made with plain radiographs of the hip joint. Treatment typically involves periacetabular osteotomies for those with concentrically reduced hips with congruous joint space and total hip arthroplasty for those presenting with end-stage osteoarthritis. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidence, the U.S. incidence of adult dysplasia of the hip is 3-5%, to and it's estimated that 10% of all total hip arthroplasties are performed as a result of dysplasia. In terms of demographics, females are more affected than males, and there's actually a two to four times relative risk increase. Risk factors for adult dysplasia of the hip include breech presentation, female sex, premeparity, and family history. Moving on to etiology, with respect to pathophysiology of adult dysplasia of the hip, this is secondary to abnormal movement of the femoral head within the acetabulum due to both osseous and soft tissue abnormalities, and this leads to overload of the acetabular rim leading to secondary osteoarthritis. Associated conditions with adult dysplasia of the hip include increased femoral antiversion, coxovalga, head-neck junction deformities, femoral head asphericity, hypoplasia of the femoral intramedullary canal, and posterior displacement of the greater trochanter. Now, let's go over some relevant anatomy. As far as the acetabulum, know that normal antiversion is 15 degrees and abduction is 45 degrees. In terms of the proximal femur, as far as the femoral head, the center of the femoral head should be at the level of the greater trochanter. As far as the proximal femur, know that normal femoral neck antiversion is 15 degrees relative to the femoral condyles, and the normal neck shaft angle is 125 degrees. Now let's go over the classification of adult dysplasia of the hip, and the ones to know include the Crow classification and the Hardophilicitis classification. So the Crow classification is divided into four grades, and is based on proximal displacement and femoral head subluxation. So in grade one, as far as proximal displacement, this corresponds to less than 10% vertical height of the pelvis. And as far as femoral head subluxation, this corresponds to proximal migration of the head-neck junction from the inter-teardrop line of less than 50% of the femoral head vertical diameter. Moving on to grade two, as far as proximal displacement, this is 10 to 15%, and femoral head subluxation is 50 to 75%. Moving on to grade three, as far as proximal displacement, this is 15 to 20%, while femoral head subluxation is 75 to 100%. Finally, moving on to grade four, proximal displacement is greater than 20%, and femoral head subluxation is greater than 100%. Moving on to the hardophilicitis classification, this is divided into dysplasia, or type A, low dislocation, or type B, and high dislocation, or type C. So starting with dysplasia, or type A, this corresponds to a femoral head within the acetabulum despite some subluxation, as well as segmental deficiency of the superior wall and inadequate depth of the true acetabulum. Low dislocation, or type B, corresponds to a femoral head that creates a false acetabulum superior to the true acetabulum. There's also a complete absence of the superior wall and inadequate depth of the true acetabulum. Finally, moving on to high dislocation, or type C, this corresponds to a femoral head that is completely uncovered by the true acetabulum and is migrated superiorly and posteriorly. There is a complete deficiency of the acetabulum and excessive antiversion of the true acetabulum. Now, let's talk about the presentation of adult dysplasia of the hip. Symptoms include hip or groin pain with insidious onset, and know that exacerbating activities include hip flexion or external rotation in the weight-bearing stance. 
Symptoms may also include lateral hip pain and a limp or Trendelenburg gait that may occur with abductor fatigue. Moving on to physical exam, inspection should include evaluation of gait, abductor fatigue or Trendelenburg sign, as well as overall ligamentous laxity, as well as the Baton score. Motion assessment may reveal increased internal rotation with the hip inflection, as well as increased femoral antiversion. Provocative tests include the anterior apprehension sign, as well as the prone external rotation test. The anterior apprehension sign is elicited in the lateral decubitus position, where the hip is placed in extension as the examiner applies progressive external rotation and adduction. This is positive with apprehension and or pain. In a prone external rotation test, an anterior directed force is applied on the posterior greater trochanter. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP, lateral, and a false profile view. Findings include asphericity of the femoral head, coxa valga with an increase in neck shaft angle, and a narrow femoral canal. As far as important measurements, the one to know include the lateral center edge angle or LCEA of Weiberg, the tonus angle, the anterior center edge angle of Lequenz, and the femoral epiphyseal acetabular roof or FEAR index. So the lateral center edge angle of Weiberg assesses the superlateral coverage of the femoral head on the AP view. The angle is between a vertical line through the center of the femoral head and the acetabular edge. A dysplastic hip corresponds to less than 20 degrees of a lateral center edge angle of Weiberg. 20 to 25 degrees is defined as borderline, and 25 to 39 degrees is normal. Moving on to the tonus angle, this is the inclination of the weight-bearing portion of the acetabulum. This is an angle formed between the horizontal and a line along the superior acetabulum. This is evaluated on the AP view. A dysplastic hip will have a greater than 10 degree tonus angle, and normal is less than 10 degrees. Moving on to the anterior center edge angle of Lequenz, this assesses anterior coverage of the femoral head. This is an angle created between a vertical line through the center of the femoral head and the anterior acetabulum. This is evaluated on the false profile view. A dysplastic hip is defined as less than 20 degrees on the anterior center edge angle of Lequenz. Normal is 25 to 40 degrees, and greater than 40 degrees is indicative of femoral acetabular impingement or FAI. Finally, moving on to the femoral epiphyseal acetabular roof or FEAR index, this is an angle formed between the horizontal portion of the central proximal femoral physeal scar and the acetabular index. This is evaluated on the AP view, and a FEAR index of less than 5 degrees is indicative of a stable hip not requiring treatment. Moving on to a CT scan, this is indicated for preoperative planning and should only be ordered by the treating surgeon. As far as findings, CT provides adequate assessment of the acetabular and proximal femoral osseous morphology, including excessive antiversion or retroversion. The distal femur should be included in patients with clinical signs of femoral antiversion. And know that the diameter of the femoral canal may be overestimated on AP radiographs and underestimated on lateral radiographs due to rotational mismatch of the metaphysis and diaphysis. As far as prevention of adult dysplasia of the hip, this includes identification and prevention of infantile developmental dysplasia, or DDH, a pavlic harness, closed and open reductions, spica casting, and proximal femoral osteotomies should be carried out in the appropriate patients. Moving on to treatment of adult dysplasia of the hip, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes supportive measures. Know that the role of long-term non-surgical management in symptomatic dysplasia is limited given premature progression of secondary osteoarthritis. Operative options include hip arthroscopy, periacetabular osteotomy, salvage pelvic osteotomy such as a Chiari or shelf osteotomy, hip resurfacing, and total hip arthroplasty. 
So starting with hip arthroscopy, indications are controversial, but can be indicated as an adjunct procedure to a periacetabular osteotomy for enhanced visualization and management of chondral, labral, and proximal femoral cam-type lesions. Note that hip arthroscopy is contraindicated in the setting of moderate to severe dysplasia. As far as outcomes, chondral and labral pathology is a sequelae of osseous instability and may recur or progress if underlying pathology is not corrected. This is associated with accelerated progression of arthritis, hip subluxation, less functional improvement, as well as increased risk of surgical failure and reoperation. Moving on to a periacetabular osteotomy, this is indicated for symptomatic dysplasia in an adolescent or adult with a concentrically reduced hip and congruous joint space. This is also indicated when there's preserved range of motion, and note that intraoperative dynamic testing of hip motion is needed to determine the need for femoral osteotomy. There should be a minimal of 90 degrees of flexion and 15 degrees of internal rotation to prevent femoral acetabular impingement. As far as advantages, periacetabular osteotomy provides highland cartilage coverage, preserved integrity of the posterior column, which allows patients to weight bear as tolerated postoperatively, large multidirectional corrections, preserving external rotators, and delaying the need for arthroplasty. As far as outcomes, know that periacetabular osteotomy reliably improves radiographic parameters and symptomatology. There's a 92% survivorship at 15 years in avoiding total hip arthroplasty. Moving on to salvage pelvic osteotomy, like the Chiari or shelf osteotomies, this is indicated for an unreduced hip and is recommended for patients with inadequate femoral head coverage and an incongruous joint. Remember once again that this is a salvage procedure. As far as outcomes of a salvage pelvic osteotomy, there is 84% survivorship at 17 years with advanced osteoarthritis as an endpoint. Know that advanced DDH and asphoricity of the femoral head is associated with poor outcomes. Moving on to hip resurfacing, this can be used for Crow type 1 or type 2 disease. Outcomes include inability to address leg length discrepancy, there's a 10% revision rate at 6 years, and there's higher revision and complication rates with hip resurfacing in patients with DDH compared to the general population. Finally, moving on to total hip arthroplasty, as far as indications, this is the treatment of choice for patients with end-stage osteoarthritis secondary to dysplasia. Note that these patients may need small acetabular components. As far as outcomes of total hip arthroplasty in the setting of adult dysplasia of the hip, these patients will have improved Harris hip scores and pain, Know that outcomes for Crow type 1 and type 2 patients are similar to those of total hip arthroplasty for primary osteoarthritis in the short term, and know that revision rates for Crow types 3 and type 4 are higher than non-dysplastic hips. Long-term follow-up demonstrates a higher revision rate for total hip arthroplasty in dysplastic hips, and there is an increased complication profile like infection, instability, and neurovascular injury. Know that there is a risk of sciatic nerve injury if the limb length is changed by greater than 4 centimeters and you may need to perform femoral shortening, such as a trochanteric or subtrochanteric osteotomy. Now, let's talk about these management techniques in a bit more detail. So starting with supportive measures, the technique includes weight loss, NSAIDs, activity modification, and intraarticular injections. Moving on to hip arthroscopy, as far as the technique, this should not be performed in isolation as it does not treat the underlying pathologic cause. Hip arthroscopy is performed concomitantly with periacetabular osteotomy to address labral pathology or evaluate for chondral injuries. If significant chondral injury is identified, periacetabular osteotomy can be abandoned with minimal morbidity. Note that hip arthroscopy continues to be controversial in this setting. Moving on to periacetabular osteotomy, such as a Gans or a Bernese osteotomy, the approach will be a modified Smith-Peterson approach. The technique involves osteotomies in the pubis, ilium, and ischium near the acetabulum. 
This allows significant three-dimensional correction of the acetabulum. As far as complications, know that hip arthroplasty performed after periacetabular osteotomy may lead to increased incidence of a retroverted acetabular cup. Now, let's talk about some salvage osteotomies like the Chiari osteotomy and the shelf osteotomy. In the Chiari osteotomy, the technique involves making a cut above the acetabulum to the sciatic notch and shifting the ilium lateral beyond the edge of the acetabulum. This depends on metaplastic bone, specifically the fibrocartilage, for successful results. Complications of a Chiari osteotomy is shortening the limb. A shelf osteotomy is approached with the modified Smith-Peterson approach. The technique involves placing an extra-articular buttress of bone to the lateral acetabulum over the subluxated femoral head. This increases the weight-bearing surface, and it covers the femoral head with fibrocartilage or metaplastic bone, not articular cartilage. Moving on to hip resurfacing, as far as the technique, this is done with the posterior approach with the release from the piriformis to the gluteus maximus tendon. Know that partial gluteus maximus tendon release aids in exposure. Know that hip resurfacing is unable to address limb length. Complications include postoperative femoral neck fracture. Moving on to total hip arthroplasty, know that anterior, lateral, or posterior-based approaches may be used. As far as the technique, a trochanteric osteotomy may be needed to improve visualization, especially in Crow type 3 or 4 dysplastics. The goal is to place the acetabular component in the true acetabulum to restore the normal hip center of rotation and biomechanics. This may cause significant leg lengthening, which would subsequently require femoral shortening, whether trochanteric or subtrochanteric. Know that components may need to be medialized or used with augments to gain adequate coverage and stability of the acetabulum. Know that you can use an uncemented cup if there is less than 30% coverage. Remember that a high hip center can be used to gain adequate bony stability but is less ideal biomechanically. Finally, know that modular femoral components allow for correction of rotational deformities. Complications include increased risk of loosening with a high hip center and increased risk of neurovascular injury and infection. As far as complications after surgery for adult dysplasia of the hip, the ones to know include sciatic nerve palsies, non-union, hip dislocation, component loosening, periprosthetic femur fracture, and infection. As far as sciatic nerve palsies, there's a 10 times increased incidence of sciatic nerve palsy, specifically 5 to 15% in the setting of adult dysplasia of the hip. Again, remember that lengthening of greater than 4 centimeters can lead to sciatic nerve palsy that will present clinically as a foot drop. Moving on to non-union, there's a 29% non-union rate with greater trochanteric osteotomy. Subtrochanteric osteotomy and trochanteric advancement lowers the non-union rate. As far as hip dislocation, there's an increased risk of hip dislocation after arthroplasty, specifically 5 to 10%, especially when a high hip center is used. Finally, moving on to component loosening, placement of the acetabular component in a high hip position is associated with increased risk of loosening. As far as prognosis of adult dysplasia of the hip, know that 48% of total hip arthroplasty in patients less than 50 years old are a result of dysplasia. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A 34-year-old female presents with chronic, insidiously progressive left hip pain. The physical exam is significant for 15 degrees of internal rotation with a hip in 90 degrees of flexion and a positive flexion internal rotation impingement sign. Radiographs show a tonus angle of 15 degrees and a lateral center edge angle of 15 degrees as well. MRI is significant for an anterosuperior labral tear. Which of the following is true of patients who undergo hip arthroscopy in the presence of this underlying pathology as compared to those without? And the choices are 1. Decelerated progression of arthritis. 2. Decreased femoral head subluxation. 
Three, decreased risk of reoperation. Four, greater failure rate. And five, greater functional improvement. The correct answer to this question is four, greater failure rate. So the patient in this vignette has symptomatic adult hip dysplasia. Patients with acetabular dysplasia who undergo arthroscopic procedures of the hip have been found to have significantly greater rates of surgical failure as compared to patients undergoing arthroscopic procedures without hip dysplasia. To quickly review, adult hip dysplasia has been found to be present in roughly 13% of patients undergoing hip arthroscopy and is most often borderline or mild. Arthroscopic management may be considered in borderline or mild dysplasia. If arthroscopic management is undertaken, labor repair and capsular plication have been shown to improve functional outcomes. However, hip arthroscopy in patients with acetabular dysplasia has been shown to be associated with accelerated progression of arthritis, hip migration, comparably inferior functional outcomes, as well as increased reoperation and surgical failure. As a result, a periacetabular osteotomy should be considered in patients with moderate to severe acetabular dysplasia and maintained acetabular cartilage in the joint space. Bird et al. evaluated the results of operative hip arthroscopy in patients with hip dysplasia. At an average 27-month follow-up, the authors found that functional outcomes were comparable to those of the general population, though two-thirds were classified only as borderline dysplasia. They concluded that the response to treatment correlated more with the hip pathology than the presence of dysplasia. Parvizi et al. reviewed the outcomes following arthroscopic management of labral tears in a population of patients with hip dysplasia. The authors found that arthroscopic management failed to relieve pain in just over 70% of patients, while accelerated arthritis and progressive migration of the femoral head was observed in 41% and 38% of patients, respectively. Additionally, nearly one half, specifically 47% of patients, required reoperation, including periacetabular osteotomy, revision arthroscopy, or total hip arthroplasty. The authors cautioned that patients with acetabular dysplasia may not benefit from arthroscopic management of labral pathology. Matsuda et al. performed a comparative case series evaluating the presence of hip dysplasia in patients undergoing hip arthroscopy. The authors found that the majority of patients with dysplasia had borderline or mild severity and reported an increased incidence of hypertrophic labrum in this population. They concluded that the most common procedures performed in the population were labral repair, femoroplasty, and capsular closure. Larson et al. compared the outcomes following arthroscopic management of intraarticular pathology in patients with hip dysplasia versus femoroacetabular impingement, or FAI. They showed that patients exhibited significantly less improvement in functional outcomes and a significantly greater failure rate, that is 32% versus 11% respectively. They concluded that arthroscopic management of patients with mild to moderate acetabular dysplasia should be undertaken with caution and that labral repair and capsular plication should be performed. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, accelerated arthritis is observed in nearly one-third of patients with acetabular dysplasia who undergo arthroscopic management of labral tear. Answer 2, progressive femoral head subluxation and migration has been found to be significantly increased in patients with acetabular dysplasia who undergo arthroscopic management of labral tear. Answer 3, reoperation has been reported in nearly one-half of patients with acetabular dysplasia who undergo arthroscopic hip procedures. And finally, answer five, improvement in functional outcomes has been shown to be at best comparable to patients with FAI in the presence of borderline or mild dysplasia and significantly worse in the presence of moderate to severe dysplasia. And moving on to the final question, a 25-year-old female presents with complaints of persistent left hip pain. A pelvic radiograph series demonstrates a lateral center edge angle of 16 degrees, a vertical center anterior margin angle of 18 degrees, 
autonomous angle of 15 degrees, a neck shaft angle of 132 degrees, and a femoral alpha angle of 38 degrees. Magnetic resonance arthrogram demonstrates a degenerative supralateral labral tear with no lesions of the articular cartilage. What is the most appropriate surgical intervention for this patient? And the choices are 1. Surgical hip dislocation with femoral acetabular osteoplasty and labral repair. 2. Proximal femoral osteotomy. 3. Salter inominate osteotomy. 4. Bernese periacetabular osteotomy. And 5. Total hip arthroplasty. The correct answer to this question is 4. Bernese periacetabular osteotomy. So the patient presents with hip pain and radiographic signs of adult hip dysplasia. Should be best treated with a Bernese periacetabular osteotomy. To quickly review, adult hip dysplasia is characterized by undercoverage of the femoral head, which leads to femoral acetabular pathomechanics that increase load to the supralateral acetabulum. These increased contact stresses cause degenerative labral disease, cartilage delamination, and progressive degenerative changes that lead ultimately to osteoarthritis. Early diagnosis of adult hip dysplasia in patients with maintained articular cartilage can benefit from reorienting periacetabular osteotomy to increase the acetabular coverage of the femoral head, which normalizes contact stresses and has been shown to preserve the hip. In 1988, Gans et al. first described the reorienting periacetabular osteotomy. The procedure was performed through a Smith-Peterson approach and utilized osteotomies of the ischium, pubic ramus, supraacetabular ilium, and the quadrilateral plate. They described this pathology as advantageous because it could be performed through a single approach and achieve large corrections in morphology, including the option of medializing or lateralizing the acetabulum. Parvizi et al. performed a retrospective analysis of 36 hips with a diagnosis of degenerative labral tears in the setting of developmental dysplasia of the hip who underwent arthroscopic labral debridement. The authors reported that all patients had improved functional scores at six weeks postoperatively, however the scores declined by two years postoperatively, and in many, they identified accelerated hip osteoarthritis. Sixteen of their patients required further open surgery, including three who underwent total hip arthroplasty. The authors concluded that arthroscopic labral debridement in the setting of DDH without correction of the underlying morphological abnormalities is likely to fail. Stepaker et al. reported 19-year follow-up of the first 63 patients to undergo periacetabular osteotomy. They reported that 60% of the hips remained preserved at final follow-up. For the 40% that failed, they found six factors that predicted a poor outcome. Young age at surgery, preoperative Merrill diabignia and postal score, positive anterior impingement test, limp, osteoarthrosis grade, and postoperative extrusion index. The Mernal Diabignia and Postal Scores are validated instruments that measure pre- and post-operative pain, gait, and mobility. They concluded that periacetabular osteotomy was an effective technique for select patients with good results at least 19 years after surgery. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, surgical hip dislocation with femoral acetabular osteoplasty and labral repair would be indicated for patients with femoral acetabular impingement, or FAI, that cannot be adequately treated with arthroscopy. This patient had radiographic signs of hip dysplasia, not FAI. Answer 2, proximal femoral osteotomy would be indicated for pediatric patients with hip dysplasia manifesting with abnormal femoral neck shaft angle or neck antiversion. This patient is skeletally mature and has a normal neck shaft angle. Answer 3, Salter's inominate osteotomy is a redirecting acetabular osteotomy indicated for correction of developmental hip dysplasia in skeletally immature patients with a mobile pubic symphysis. And finally, answer five, total hip arthroplasty would be indicated if this patient demonstrated advanced degeneration of the articular cartilage, which is not evident on MRI.
That's all for this review about adult dysplasia of the hip. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.